The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Today, Duran Duran content, ahoy, as we're totally reeling after seeing England play hungry like at Wolves. Southgate side come undone against the Magyars in the latest notorious Nadir. Elsewhere, World Cup lineup is now complete and Australia votes remain. Uh, keeper Andrew keeping Socceroos in the World Cup in a penalty shootout with Peru. With Costa Rica also booking their place, we'll be looking ahead to this winter's tournament. We've got loads of other chat as well and the new Premier League fixture picture. All that and more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Thursday, 16th of June. Hello, listener. Uh, on Totally Today, we've got Daniel Story. Hello, Daniel. Good morning, James. Uh, also with us, Matt Davis-Adams. Hi, James. Hello. And Jay Harris. Hi, Jay. Uh, is, it, is this your Totally kind of like full show debut after one or two kind of scene-stealing cameos? It certainly is. So thank you very much for, for having me on. No, I'm, I'm excited. Uh, and, uh, you know, how nice for you to come on to a show with so much to discuss in terms of, you know, fresh football content. Exactly. Exactly. One big story in the last few days, and Daniel's fresh back from it. That's England nil, Hungary four. We'll be hearing more about that very shortly. But before that, and freshly dropped this Thursday AM, it's the Premier League fixtures. Oh, featuring Nottingham Forest, ask your parents, uh, for the first time in 23 <laughs> years. Wow. I I'm, I personally don't quite subscribe to the rush to check out fixtures, but I imagine supporters of newly promoted sides very much do. Who have you got, Matt? And, yeah, and, and that's Daniel? exactly right. I, I I look down my nose at people who get excited about Premier League fixtures until my team happens to be in the Premier League, and then suddenly I'm giddy with excitement. We have Newcastle away on the opening day, Woof. Uh, and then we play West Ham at home, and we also play Spurs at home and Man City away in the first five, which is pretty tricky. Um, but then the overriding feeling, I don't know about Matt, but the overriding feeling this morning is looking through the Premier League fixtures, having watched the Premier League constantly for 10 years and realising that there are quite a lot of good teams in the Premier League, which is slightly daunting. Yeah, that, that's kind of how I'm feeling as well. That There's a period in April where I thought that we might be able to get back-to-back wins. But other than that, um, it's all <laughs> it's all getting a bit a bit real. I like December, uh, Man United away, Boxing Day, and then Chelsea at home on New Year's Eve, which is absolutely ideal for me in terms of commuting. But yeah, mm. I, I'm, I'm slightly concerned about August, but producer Charlie assures me that we can beat West Ham at home. So fingers crossed for that one. Uh, do you know who you're facing on the final day of the season? And what do you think you'll be playing for on that day? Day. Away at Crystal Palace, probably to sort out the uh, final Europa League place, I'd assume. <laughs> All right. You think Palace are in with a chance then, do you? <laughs> mm. All right. Is it true? I heard, because there's been quite a bit of chat about how the fixtures are worked out. Is it true that newly promoted sides are allowed to choose their opening fixture? And I'd heard, Jay, you'll know about this, I'd heard that Brentford last season actually chose Arsenal, lols. I honestly don't know if you can choose or not. That's new news to me. But I'd kind of, if that is true, I'd understand why Brentford would pick Arsenal just because it's a, a London derby. Fans right. are going to be properly up for it. So mm. it just was going to be an amazing atmosphere. I think Daniel's furiously typing away trying to find out yeah. if this is true or not. <laughs> it sounds slightly hypocritical, doesn't it? <laughs> and I also, I can't work out who at Forest thought... Uh, Newcastle away. <laughs> I think you, I think if every promoted club had a choice, you'd always mm. be at home on the opening day. 
Yeah. Uh, you, you, you wouldn't go for a fellow promoted club, which, I mean, that raises an issue if they get to choose as well. Um, but yeah, I think you'd probably go for a, a kind of Arsenal down to Villa at home on the opening day, I'd say. Mm. I'm surprised that um, Sky weren't keen on, on it being, if they could exert any influence, uh, on it being Forest v Liverpool and a, and a reprise on the 30th anniversary of the first ever Super Sunday game. I felt that was kind of written in the stars, but, but alas, not to be. Not written in the stars. Liverpool, by contrast, will be instead visiting newly promoted Fulham, who do open up at Craven Cottage, and uh, the other newly promoted side, Scott Parker's Bournemouth. And they begin their campaign at the Vitality against Stephen Gerrard's Aston Villa. Excellent. Uh, are there any other fixtures that uh, Jay? Did you look out for anything in particular? I mean, I have had a scan through um, through Brentford's fixture list. They start um, away at Leicester City, mm. sec- second game at home to Eric Ten Hag's Manchester United. So I think that's going to be a fun one. And then they've got um, the West London derby against Fulham for their third game of the season. But um, if we can fast forward it to the to the end of the season, mm. Brentford's final six games are, are brutal. I think it's Chelsea, Nottingham Forest, Liverpool. Tottenham, West Ham before the small task of hosting Man City on the final day. So that's going to be um, a real bundle of joy if they need some serious points in those final six games. Yeah, the small matter of Manchester City. Yeah, <laughs> Liverpool on the final day, I happen to know, are going to be at St Mary's. So what significance could that have in Czech's notes about a year's time? We'll have to wait and see. Terrible start for Chelsea, by the way. Everton Is it? Away. What have they got? Everton away, lost on the last four visits to Goodison and scored one goal during that time. So, so not exactly wow. what uh, Todd Bowley and, uh, and his cohorts would have wanted, I don't think. Lampard mm. will have the England job by then, so we'll <laughs> <laughs> On the subject of England, actually, did you notice that, or did you see that with the kind of fixture rearrangement consequential to the World Cup sudden intrusion in our November, December, uh, thinking that uh, Gareth Southgate and England had requested the final weekend before the World Cup starts, which is only about eight days before the tournament begins, to be as dull as possible, just when they've gotten rid of Burnley as well. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's a perfectly reasonable request to avoid any intra-big six fixtures, but I would be interested to know how how many more injuries or how much more, you know, how, how further players enter into the red zone when they play intra-big six games than any other game. My, my hunch is that it probably doesn't make that much difference at all. Hmm. Looks like it's happened though, doesn't it? Just looking yeah, at the, yeah, it has. the fixtures. Yeah. On what, that. what are the fixtures on on that final weekend before the break? I know Man City um, have Brentford at home, so that's like an ideal fixture for them. Seventy percent possession. <laughs> Same for Liverpool. Southampton at home mm. for them. Uh, Man United away at Fulham. Tottenham Leeds is probably the biggest game of the so, day. So it's the final games before the World Cup. The final games of the season as well. Yeah, I was about uh, to say. I think it's a flip they? of that. Yeah, I think so. Mm. Intriguing. All right, well, those are the f- the fixtures. Um, everyone will play everyone home and away, many of you will be thinking. So we, we, we can move on, perhaps. And on the subject of England, perhaps, how about Tuesday night's uh, business at Molyneux next? You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. It could get even worse here. Ramsdale's trying to prevent it, but he can't. Gaz Daggers got in on the act, the substitute. And can you believe this scoreline? England nil, Hungary four. Tuesday night there, Channel 4 viewers treated to 
Uh, Hungary 4, England nil. It's the station that brought you Spaced. This is England, Black Books and Drop the Dead Donkey. Somehow reached its peak, perhaps with a broadcast that blended all of those elements together. Also led some correspondents to wonder if the countdown eh, had already started for manager Gareth Southgate. Daniel, you were there at Molyneux to witness quite literally history. Yeah, it was it was wretched. It was a, a shambolic performance and a, a, a even more calamitous result. I was genuinely surprised by the the vitriol towards Southgate. It, the, you know, there were there were fans in that middle tier just above the press box who were kind of filing out and leaning over and screaming abuse at him. Who, if they'd have been on the front row of the lower tier, looked as if they would try and get over the advertising boardings. It's the it's the worst, it's the most toxic atmosphere I can remember seeing towards any manager that I've been live at, which is pretty remarkable given where England were a year ago. You know, Southgate doing a lap of, of Wembley even after losing in the final while the crowd chant Southgate, you're the one. It's it's a heck hmm. of a fall. But it was a, a dismal performance and and there is a sense that some of this has been coming for a while in terms of the, the inability to break down deep defences. You know, we saw that in the group stages at the Euros. Um, I, I think uh, my personal view is that Southgate's been a little bit shafted by the whole thing. I, I think he would have preferred... The Nations League was a good idea, but I think having it as a four-yearly tournament is probably better than than... You know, having it hosting it every two years because it allows a mix between friendlies and, um, you know, in, in inverted commas, competitive football. And particularly in a World Cup year where I think Southgate would probably have liked to play some non-European opposition. One of the one of the, the necessities of the Nations League is that it means you play a heck of a lot of people from your own confederation and mm. not very many at all against anyone else, particularly given there are no pre-tournament friendly. So I think I think he wanted to rotate but he's now in a corner where he he basically can't rotate in September because he needs a result. He he kind of has to be seen to be to be attacking because that's what fans that's what they were most angry about. They were booing at nil nil when England were passing the ball around against Hungary. Um, and he's going to have to do it mid season because there's nothing pre tournament. You know, England play on the first day of the World Cup and that's eight days after the Premier League break. So it's a bit of a hospital pass, albeit one that he dropped on on Tuesday evening. Mm. In in Channel Four terms, then it was more boo selector than bow selector. <laughs> Matt and Jay, uh, Daniel's described this as one of the worst England performances of his lifetime. Is is that the take on this, or is it more kind of B level tournament stuck at the end of a long season with an experimental side? So let's have a bit of perspective. I mean, after all, France, who are world champs and that, and I think a lot of people's favourites for the tournament, are, also did astonishingly badly in this kind of mini summer cluster of fixtures it's a very difficult one isn't it because you can find examples of teams who've done okay over this break and and say well they're clearly not uh, affected by the fact that it comes at the end of a, of a long season um but it, i think it was raheem sterling was talking after this game saying the difficulty was getting some time off and then having to come back and go into it again i think psychologically that's probably quite a difficult thing to do but also the team that started for england against hungary you know realistically in, in that first game of the world cup at the moment, you'd say Walker and Stones probably start uh, one of Bellingham and Phillips and Kane, and that would be it. So it's it's not like this was the, the team that England are going to go in with. But it's quite difficult in a forum like this where you feel like you have to come down on one side or the other. But I think actually it's OK to say, well, you know, Gareth Southgate has made mistakes as England manager. He picked the wrong penalty takers in the final of Euro 2020, maybe got his tactics 
wrong then. And, and yes, England were fortunate to get to the semi-finals of the World Cup. They had a, a pretty easy route through to that. And then they got swamped in midfield against Croatia and, and Southgate didn't really react to that. But the flip side is he, he is England's most successful manager since Alf Ramsey. You know, he has changed up until uh, Tuesday night, the whole feel around the England team from, from supporters, players and everybody. So it, it's a bit of both, isn't it? I mean, the, the reaction that he got in the in the game at Molyneux was, was extraordinary and seemed completely out of place to me, albeit England got beaten 4-0 by Hungary. But is this a game that anybody's really going to remember in two or three years' time? I would say probably not. So, Well, it, it was their worst home defeat since 1928. So I imagine that it will you know, stick in people's minds. Well, I mean, it might stick bit. in people's minds, but but I think the next time you'll probably hear about it significantly is when England lose 5-0 at home to somebody. And then they say it's <laughs> the September. worst defeat since they got beaten by Hungary. You know, it's, it's yeah. a competition that, that has very little interest for England in that winning it doesn't matter much because the prize for winning it is you know any a route to qualification for competitions that England always qualify anyway for so I can understand why it's difficult for the players to you know to have full adrenaline and play at their optimum in games like this and I think what will disappoint him is the fact that the players who he's given chances to during these games haven't put any pressure on the existing squad members. Mm. You know, people like Jared Bowen and, and Conor Gallagher who just haven't looked like they're capable of ousting somebody from their from you know a well established place in the squad. And Aaron Ramsdale, would you include him in that on Tuesday's performance? Mm. Very much so. My suspicion is that Tuesday was a culmination of something. I've, I've long thought, although it's a kind of difficult thing to say because it sounds very accusatory, but it does sort of feel for Southgate, like amongst a section of England supporters, when England do well, it's down to the players. And when England suffer setbacks, it's down to Southgate. And I think this was a, uh, a culmination of that. And that is very hard to to turn around as England manager. I basically think now, if England don't win the World Cup, then Southgate will probably leave and probably leaves that job in the minds of plenty of supporters about, you know, net neutral in terms of... Which, given that if England reached the final, that would be three of our five best ever major tournament performances in our history. I mean, if England reached the final, it's doing a lot of heavy lifting with that statistic. (laughs) It is, it is. But he's already returned England's second best ever major tournament performance and their joint third best major ever tournament performance in his only two tournaments. Hmm. I I, I think there's probably an argument that Southgate's football is better suited to tournament football where it matters if you get through rather than matters if you entertain and therefore between these tournaments there is inevitable lulls both in terms of motivating the players and in terms of motivating supporters and that doesn't help him but you can't knock the tournament record. Daniel was making the comparison between um, the scenes after the Euro final and, and what happened at Molyneux. It does make you feel like a little bit that Southgate's become a victim of his own success. He's kind of just completely warped what, what people expect of England over the last five, six years. That people just expect that we're always going to be playing this free-flowing, nice attacking football so that when things go wrong, it's this knee-jerk reaction that everything's disastrous. Um, I definitely fall down on the perspective that it's the Nations League. I think I've certainly always perceived it as a little bit of a an irritating tournament. And I think just the way the football schedule is at the moment with the World Cup in the middle of the season and what's happened after the pandemic and stuff, players are, players are on their knees and it just felt like these four games were just quite unnecessary. So although it was no doubt a really poor performance and, you know, as it's been alluded to, 
there are some players on the fringes of the squad who you would have really liked to have stepped up and performed, have really, really dropped the ball. I don't think it's the time to to really start panicking. Um, but having said that, if if we see similar in September, mm. then maybe that is a is a bigger indicator of where this team is at the moment. Yeah, fixtures with Italy and Germany coming up to conclude the Nations League as the fight against relegation to League B uh, continues. But are, are England fans allowed to panic a little bit about the fact that there are no goals from an open play, just the one penalty from from Harry Kane in this kind of four-game... I mean, that's quite a broad sample, isn't it? Four-game... Yeah, we we, we do struggle to break down teams that, that sit back because Kane likes to drop deep, as he does for, for Tottenham. Uh, Raheem Sterling stays high, but he then gets a little bit isolated and is quite easy to defend when he's on his own. He, I don't think he has quite got the, the balance of that team right against t- opponents who do sit back. We saw that in the Euro 2020 group stage. We, you know, England were, were desperately poor at times in that group stage and came in for a lot of flack. The positive spin of that is that fast forward two weeks and suddenly everyone Southgate, you're the one. So these things can change. And, and we should say, for all the criticism of Southgate being perceived as a negative manager, England were the top scorers in the Euro 2020 knockout stages. They scored nine goals in four games. So... That's not really a problem. He's proven that he can do it when the opportunity arises. Yeah, and actually, they'd done really badly in the Nations League games before the uh, Euro 2020. Uh, well, it was a year before, but still, and then kind of did pretty good in the actual tournament. Germany and Italy, by the way, facing each other on Tuesday, with Germany absolutely thumping the Azuri five-two. They were four-nil up. Italy grabbed a couple back at the end. Timo Werner got a brace. And Wilfred Nonto became Italy's youngest goalscorer ever. All right, then. Matt, anything else you want to add? Or should we just crack on? Um, well, you know, England will be a, a different prospect, hopefully, during the World Cup because the timing of it won't. It'll be the old uh, Platini. What was it? Lions in the autumn, lambs in the spring. Mm. <laughs> nice. Very good. OK. On the subject of the World Cup, we've had... Two more teams qualifying in the last few days to complete the 32-team lineup. Let's talk about them next. Place your bets. Welcome to Pep Roulette. Charlotte, feeling confident today, me. And your selection? Just start up front. Blue number nine and 26. Uh, 17 as well, just behind the front two. Like excellent. Good luck. Blue number seven. Unlucky sir. Oh, Sterling. He started last week. Predicting Pep's lineups is hard, but fortunately, we've made our bet builder easy. Simply choose a top pre-built bet builder, click add to bet slip, select your stake, and done. Paddy power. Online exclusive. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. ABC reporter Tony Armstrong there, of course, reacting to Monday night, Tuesday morning's memorable Socceroos shootout victory over Peru scenes when subsequently 
uh, Tony had his hand-knitted scarf that his mum had given him lifted live on TV. So a bittersweet evening. Anyway, uh, Australia into the World Cup. They'll be in a group with France, Denmark and Tunisia. Tuesday, Costa Rica joined them and the other 31 nations by beating New Zealand. Costa Rica go into a group with ooh, Spain, Germany and Japan. Yikes. Well, neither that match against the Kiwis or Australia's victory over Peru were that memorable, apart from the bit that we all saw, the penalty shootout. Goalkeeper Andrew Remain of Sydney FC, the star of the show after he replaced skipper Matt Ryan at the end of extra time, four spot kicks. Remain danced about across the line, waving his hands and legs. Also handed the ball to Peru's penalty takers with one or two little words in their ear. And, perhaps most key, uh, noticed that Pedro Gaiesi, his uh, opposite number for Peru, had a water bottle with attached notes and research on it, which he picked up and threw into the crowd when Pedro was busy preparing to save uh, or uh, to uh, face his first, his first shot. Is that all fair enough, Matt, given the circumstances? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I kind of think writing down what players are going to do with their penalties is a bit of a cheat. What? Code anyway, to be honest. Um, so I quite like, and, and that's it That's it now, isn't it? That's finished. Nobody's going to use that again because the opposition goalie will just lob it into the crowd. Um, there is an option to remember where yeah. six or seven <laughs> people are going to kick a penalty, isn't there? Quite, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, thank God Wes Fodderingham didn't, didn't think of doing this um, against Forrest a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but yeah, absolutely, it, it's fair enough. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I wondered if the psychology of this had shifted because of the, the Kepa thing in the League Cup final when, when mm. the, you know, he, he came on and got nowhere near any penalties and then, and then missed the decisive one. But obviously that that hadn't um, permeated through to World Cup qualifying. But it, it must be such a strange thing. If you know you're going to take one of the penalties and you see the substitute goalkeeper coming on, even, you know, I'm sure those players didn't know very much about Andrew Redmayne's record of saving penalties, but the assumption would be this guy must be really, really good at it. Mm. And that, you know, that crucial kind of 1% or whatever difference really, mm. really worked in their favour. It was it, The dancing was very Grobbler-esque. I felt so. He's kind of taking a, a page from all the all the greatest hits of um, substitute <laughs> goalkeepers coming on and affecting penalty shootouts, or goalkeepers affecting penalty shootouts. Uh, no, I loved it. Yeah, fantastic. And and more for the Peru keeper for not not keeping a close eye on his water bottle. Well, indeed. You'll be happy to hear I have very strong views on this. Um, oh, good. Because uh, because you're talking to the individual who, when the Athletic played a, an eleven-a-side game against another media company recently, um, I time wasted on multiple times throughout that match. So um, when there's so little at stake in that game, if a World Cup qualification is on the line, you've got to do everything within your power to uh, to make sure you're getting over the line. And if that involves throwing water bottles, although I did think that was. That was probably a stretch too far. I wouldn't put that yeah. in my I wouldn't put that in my playbook, but you know, each to their own. I mean, um, imagine you, you, if his mum had given him that water bottle. Like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you've got to do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Who was the other media company, Jay? Uh, it was the Telegraph. So uh, oh, was yeah, it? I'm sure they've got a dartboard somewhere in that building with my head on it. <laughs> right, a squad stacked with right wingers, etc., and, and so on. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you win? Uh, yes, we won two 0 Hence the yes. time wasting. All right. Have that wrong side of history. Uh, good. Daniel, you're a, a very um, you're a very kind-hearted fellow, so I imagine wonder you... where that was going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew Redmayne, are you looking forward to seeing more similar, you know, him and his beard and, 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 and antics 
uh, in uh, the World I, Cup? I can't think of a more 2022 Australian-looking man than Ed Main. <laughs> he is. He's taken on that Mille Yedinak oversized beard. We're now probably obliged to call them hipster beards, I suppose, but he is a frightening-looking man if you were taking a penalty against him, I suspect, mm. and that's without the dancing. I think in uh, any I, circumstances, but yeah. I, I, for some reason, I've got no affinity to Australia necessarily, but it does feel like a proper World Cup with Australia in it, always, because the support is always good. Um, there's a, this sense that they are there for a good time, not a long time. Uh, they are in a pretty tricky group, but then they, mm. they you know, that was it. That was always going to happen because they're a low, you know, low pot side. But I think it makes for a better World Cup. I really do. Well, they've they've been to the last five. Yeah. tournaments and yeah. they've all been proper world cups yeah mm. but we're not we're not going to see andrew redmayne in, in guitar are we he's the reserve goalie so they probably go out in the group stage don't get to a penalty shootout this is it for him they, to be uh, we should say australia have done i know the asian or the afc qualifying is 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 weaker than others but they've done incredibly well to get the world cup they've only got had two players in the squad against peru who play in top five european leagues which is mm. is matty ryan and uh Hristich at, at frankfurt so it's a, it's a really big effort for them to get the tournament. So fair play. In the meantime, uh, Redmayne, a very 2022 type player, providing you know vital content off the back of a game which saw just three shots on target in 120 minutes. So very much fitting in with the, the modern paradigm of the sport. I asked if we're looking forward to seeing him. Here's Kaz B asking now that the World Cup qualifying has finally concluded. Are there any players that the panel will be saddened to not see in Qatar? It feels like Man City and Liverpool are going to be big beneficiaries of this because Haaland and Mares and Salah and Diaz aren't going to be there. So they're going to get a mid-season break and then come hmm. back. And you know, if there wasn't enough gap between those two teams and everybody else last season, it's going to be accentuated because of that, possibly. Do you think clubs have factored that in in much the same way that people used to say about, oh, they've got Cup of Nations in January? You know, that, that clubs have now factored that in to their uh, transfer policies? Uh, no, although it is probably a, a sway in the argument for Liverpool keeping Mo Salah this season and risking him leaving on a free next summer, I suspect. Yeah, I, th- I think that probably plays a part. Um, Senegal obviously will be there, so Mane, you know, who would have played at the World Cup if he's sold and they keep Salah, that probably makes some sense, yeah. As I say, in terms of players, uh, players we're missing, Marco Verratti is always the one for me because watching him at PSG can feel a little bit soulless because it's PSG. Um, whereas watching for Italy and watching him within the, you know, within the raw emotion of that Italy team is something to behold. So that's a real shame, I think. I've got a bit of a, a random answer, but it's the first one that came to my mind. But obviously the thrill and the beauty of a World Cup is often these players who you've never heard of before who come and take you by a complete surprise. And obviously Nigeria didn't qualify. And I just remember Ahmed Musa, I think it was at the 2014 World Cup, just coming out of nowhere, scoring a couple of goals against Argentina. And, and then I think he did it again in Russia, picked up a couple of goals. So it's a shame that, you know, those players that thrill you like that won't, won't be there. Mm. Although, you know, I guess by definition, there are other ones that we haven't heard of yet that exactly. will. Yeah. Mm, all right. It's the 16th of June. Of course, in an ordinary year, we're not for business with envelopes and that. We'd be in the thick of a, a tournament right now. On this day, for example, in 2016, you had England beating Wales at Euro 2016. In World Cup terms, 16th of June saw Algeria winning their first ever World Cup match 
1982, that was against uh, West Germany. In 2010, it saw Switzerland beating Spain. Uh, what was the first and only time that a nation has lost their opening World Cup match and gone on to win the tournament? And some wonderful goals uh, listeners scored on the 16th of June in that World Cup. Uh, Cambiasso for Argentina, running off that 25-pass move against Serbia-Montenegro. 6-0 win. Messi also getting his first ever World Cup goal in that in that victory. Uh, and uh, one that producer Charlie dug out. Thanks, producer Charlie. Uh, Josimar for Brazil against Poland. Do you remember that one, Matt? Uh, I do not. I was four years old. <laughs> you must remember it. You must remember the circumstance <laughs> if you know how old you were. <laughs> it was 1986, listener, when Matt was just four years old. And Josimar basically went very, very Brazilian, dancing around a series of players... But at the same time, manoeuvring himself into a pretty impossible angle and yet still managing to kind of curl one over the, the keeper. Am I doing that justice, Daniel? Do you recall it? Yeah, I think that's that's good. Yeah, I was less than a year old, but that's... Right. Jay, I'm not even going to ask. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, would, I wouldn't. I wouldn't if I were you. <laughs> All right, then. That Cambiasso one was astonishing, though, wasn't it? That was that was such a thing of beauty. That, that if If... Twitter had been a thing in 2006, that would have been a hang it in the Louvre kind of goal. <laughs> also, an incredibly satisfying name to say, Esteban Cambiasso. Just mm. feels good to say, doesn't it? Good in a Geordie accent, Cambiasso. <laughs> How old were you in 2006, Matt? Uh, how old was I in 2006? 1916. 24. Mm, 24. Oh, okay. All right. Remember it well. What's what's peak age for getting excited, you know, getting teary-eyed about World Cup goals? I think it's earlier than that, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Four, 14 to 16, I'd say. Yeah, right. I, well, the, yeah the, the kind of sort of rule of thumb is normally it's the first World Cup after your 10th birthday okay. is the one that you cherish and that that's true for me with France '98, um, uh, but I mean, obviously, the circumstances of that for those kids who were born in 2010, I don't know if Qatar is going to be that sadly, and that's one of the sad things about the tournament. But yeah, it's meant to be the first one after your tenth birthday is the one you cherish the most. Hmm. I cherish 2002 World Cup more than 2006 when I was older. I, w- I was seven at the 2002 World Cup. All right, I, rem- yep. I remember that more. But yeah. I think that's just because I can vividly remember, um, you know, the Ronaldinho Seaman incident and just all of right. kind of like the so fanfare around clarify, it. Because if you Google Ronaldinho, Ronaldinho Seaman <laughs> incident, there's a lot of things that come up. <laughs> He's talking about the, the England game. And, the, the... and then, um, yeah, because I was uh, at school at the time and a lot of games were kicking off at, you know, yeah, eight o'clock in the morning. Yeah. yeah. So I just remember that, in, in yeah. being in assembly and they'd wheel in a TV um, no way. And they, yeah, seriously. And they'd Progressive all just, institution. Yeah, they'd all just let us watch the games until um, until until they finished. That's so. brilliant. I have heard, because, uh, you know, we've got this World Cup coming up now at an, in an unusual kind of time frame uh, in terms of the calendar. But the next one, the USA-Canada thing, is that, has there been some talk of that taking place at early in the morning our time? Well, it, it's, it's USA, Canada and Mexico. And Mexico, sorry. Uh, and so there's going to be a vast difference between fixture times. Uh, mm. The reality is they normally fit these things as best as they can for a European audience. Um, so I suspect there'll be some sort of fixing of, I guess it would make sense to have the the later games on the 
west coast of america but yes that that breakfast world cup was was incredible i was doing i think i was doing gcse's at the time and we you know it was literally watching games before going into an exam and then finding the result out afterwards it was superb excellent all right well uh, next up let's get some more questions from you listener This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. You're listening to the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. With Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Think of it as your protection against Arsenal doing an Arsenal. And in the words of Jennifer Aniston, here comes the science bit. Pre-match bet builders only. Get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Max free bet is £10. Enhanced match odds are not included. Online exclusives only. T's and C's apply. And please be gambleaware.org. Hello, Alan Shepard. Uh, Alan... Wants to know our thoughts on John Dahl Thomason arriving at Blackburn. What's this? And Vincent Company at Burnley. Yeah, all those years on Championship Manager 0102 are finally paying off as there are some absolute <laughs> nonsense uh, appointments. I mean, Company is Company is less of a gamble in that you know he he clearly know has lived in the area before and knows English football and has faced Burnley plenty of times. Burnley are in a very that's the one where I'm more surprised that he's taken Burnley rather than Burnley have taken him. And hmm. maybe with Blackburn, loosely, it's the other way around. And that Thomason, you know, I know he played in England for a short while, but it strikes as an incredibly... It, it, I'm not sure there's a more right field to left field appointment than Tony Mowbray to John Dale Thomason, put it that way. Hmm. It's a tough gig for Thomason as well. You know, Tony Mowbray left there basically saying he'd had no communication from Blackburn's owners who you know we're familiar with from their time in the Premier League which was a long time ago now about about 10 years ago but not a particularly well-run club all told albeit they've got an excellent academy so you'll have to be dipping into that on the assumption that the likes of of Brereton Diaz will be off and and they're they're losing or have already lost other players out of contract too so I think that's a tough gig for him and and company you know like I said when you were away James the idea to, to take a job on the basis that it is not a particularly suitable one for you nor you for it, but it's commutable seems um, <laughs> misguided, I think. So I, I'm, I'd be surprised if he was there at the end of the season, to be completely yeah, honest. Yeah, I'm, I'm sceptical about company going to Burnley as well. And as Daniel said, not necessarily from from company's perspective, because I think he's he's probably got the credentials to do quite well, but just the kind of setup at Burnley at the moment with what's going on with the ownership and, you know, the amount of um, first-team players they've, they've lost this summer, you know, losing Ben Mee, losing James Tarkovsky, company's going to have to go in and basically completely rebuild that team. And I think that's quite a quite a daunting challenge. And I think fair play to him for taking it on. But had he waited a little bit longer, he might have been able to, to go and join a club where, you know, it wouldn't be such like a massive and dramatic rebuilding job. Yeah. That sound like uh, quite a struggle ahead of him. There, I was intrigued though, Matt, because you were just kind of you were just throwing out a little prediction 
mm. for company. <laughs> Uh, and Andrew Turner says, when will Matt make his annual spot-on prediction for which surprising team is getting relegated this season? At what point does one out of two become annual? <laughs> <laughs> That's my question. It's what about the, the quality other? of the one, Daniel, I think. Yeah. But I did already flag Wolves as potential strugglers for next season, so I'll stick okay. with that. All right. Got a one in two chance of making it, Wolves. <laughs> uh, Stephen Taylor wants to know what rule changes would you like to see uh, on the back of Arsene Wenger talking about kick-ins? And robot linesmen, I don't think they're quite robot linesmen, but yeah, uh, automated offside decisions in uh, 2022. It w- I would like to see robot linesmen, actually. That's what I would, that would be my pick. And also, IFA, apparently they're looking at 60-minute games with clock stoppages. The, yeah, the, both of these initiatives, the kick-ins and the stoppages, is to try and reduce time-wasting, mm. which, I, I mean... Bad the, news, the, kick, the kick-ins, I think, are... <laughs> the kick-ins, I think, are an awful idea because uh, I think it will if it becomes a tactical you know advantage then teams will take far longer over planning a kick in than they would a throw in i suspect you know with a throw in it's either take it short or give it to the guy who can throw it the furthest right um but would it the, not be more consistent with football as a whole to have outfield players continuing their uh, you know to dress the ball with their feet rather than their hands yeah but it's a that that, that is a very much a, a fabric of the game rule change isn't it I mean that's it like is, yeah. you know mm. you could you could there are lots of things you could say that would make it more foot heavy but um I think they feel quite yeah they could feel quite systemic changes the, the one I would do for for stopping time wasting or for punishing fouls more is allowing players to take the free kick to themselves that they win so which I think would probably go some way to stopping that tactical fouling and maybe even some some way to stopping the kind of rolling around after being fouled because if you were fouled on the break you could immediately get up and take the ball to yourself and carry on dribbling then that might you know I think that would be a good thing to Hmm. quicken the game up okay the kicking seems to raise its head sort of every five ten years doesn't it I'm sure that I heard about this was going to be trialed in what was then the Vauxhall conference 20 years ago for a season they did do it they did do it I think it was I want to say Unibond League. It was lower than conference. But yeah, they did do it for a season. And I think they didn't carry on with it, which is probably all the evidence we need. It's such a fundamental shift to how the game would work, isn't it? I just feel with stuff like this, it's kind of FIFA saying, OK, let's let Arsene say something in public. We all pat him on the head and say, very good, Arsene. Yeah, we'll have to have a good chat about that. And then it just doesn't happen. All right, then. So none of the above, basically. That's the answer there. Leave it as it is. Leave well alone. Uh, and uh, Itoralda says, what would be best for Christian Eriksen to do amongst the speculated trifecta of offers from Brentford, his current outfit, Spurs or Man United? Jay, over to you. What's what's the story here? What are the prospects of him, first of all, staying at a, a, a bus stop in West London? To be honest, it feels like he's probably leaning towards an exit at this point. Um, I think after he came out a couple of months ago and and said that it was his ambition to play in the Champions League, you can kind of completely understand and respect that. The way I've kind of watched this story unfold over the last few months, it felt like in the beginning, um, when he first started playing for Brentford, everyone was so amazed and so thrilled and so happy that he was playing so well again. But I think a few of us probably didn't think he'd keep it up and then he did keep it up. You know, he put in that amazing performance when, when Brentford beat Chelsea 4-1 at, at Stamford Bridge. And just with every passing week, it feels like Brentford were just 
just so ridiculously lucky that those circumstances were, if that's the way you want to put it, that those circumstances worked out and they were able to sign Christian. I think it just now seems like he is entitled to do whatever he wants. And if that means he wants to go and play for a team in the Champions League or for a bigger club, then I don't think anybody's going to begrudge him for that. But it certainly feels like he, he's leaning towards towards leaving. And there are so many different factors to, to consider with this. You know, Brentford are... They're a really well-run club. They're not going to break the bank to keep him. They're, they're going to have a threshold of what they can offer him financially. And if he feels like that's not good enough, he'll go somewhere else. But then mm. he's been he's been quite settled in um, in West London. I think he's just bought a house here recently. And then obviously he's got the whole connections with, with Thomas Frank and lots of Danish national players at Brentford. So there's lots to consider, but I think it just feels like it's inevitable he's going to go to a bigger club at this point. All right, but if he wanted to base his decision on the commuting, then then, then Brentford would be the <laughs> ideal choice. Or Spurs, actually. So to, to Anders' point, where, out of those, which would be best for him as a player, do you think? Brentford, Spurs or Man United? Matt, Dan? I think I think there's a an ego thing that being the player to, or being perceived as the player to transform Manchester United is, is a big deal. Uh, obviously, Eric Ten Hag is kind of schooled in Ajax culture and Christian Eriksen, is the same. Maybe that's indicative. He's got Donny van der Beek there. He's a kind of similar role. But a few weeks ago, uh, or before the end of the championship season, I was desperate for Christian Eriksen to stay at Brentford because I love the story. I love the fact that he led the club. I love that everything seemed to fit. But as a very selfish Nottingham Forest fan, I'm now absolutely desperate for him to go anywhere else because I think he, he was a he was a game... I mean, Jay knows more than me, but he was a game changer last season. He, he arrived at a time when Brentford needed a lift and boy, did he provide it. And it's very, very hard. Well, it's impossible for them to replace that creative influence from central midfield, which Brentford did become a little bit too reliant on those wing backs and the crossing into the box to Tony. And it's going to be, I think, if Brentford are going to lose him, and I'm sure Jay agrees, they'd rather it happen quickly because if they're left hanging on till the end of August before he makes a decision, that or the end of July before he makes a decision, that that gets tricky. Not Man United. That, that, it's been such a beautiful story. Don't go to Man United and have your soul swallowed up within three months and just lose your love for the game. I think, as as Daniel just said, it's tricky for Brentford because even if they were going to spend £50 million on a player, which is not what they do, they're probably not going to get anyone that comes even close to matching Ericsson's quality. It really was just such a once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity that enabled him to go to a club like that. You know, as soon as he signed, people from the club were saying, this is the biggest player we've ever had play for us. And like you said, they basically just switched to a 4-3-3, let Ericsson kind of do what he want. And it yeah, could be a harsh reality for them if they do lose him next season and they lose that creativity and things don't go well in the first 10 games of the season. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. If you're not keen on him going to Man United for a variety of reasons, what about a prospective move to Spurs? How well would that fit in? And, and how how surprised are you with the way that Spurs have already got business done this summer as you know, as opposed to their traditional uh, transfer policy? Uh, Eve Basuma, uh, that deal with Brighton has been agreed for £25 million. A, a medical taking place today. Uh, Ivan Perisic coming in from Inter and... Matt and Daniel, as you'll know, Jed Spence coming in from Forest. Yeah, technically coming in from Middlesbrough, he was on loan at Forest um, mm. from Middlesbrough last season. It, I think, 
I think it shows the power of Antonio Conte that, doesn't it? Because nobody else has ever been able to get Daniel Levy to do this before. But but Conte obviously made his feelings clear at the end of the season. And, and I don't think it was a hollow threat for him that if he didn't get what he wanted, then, then he would have walked away. But having fulfilled his end of the bargain by getting them into the Champions League... Um, it's fair enough, isn't it, that, that he's got what he wanted in terms of these additions. It'd be interesting to see if anybody comes in for Basuma last minute. He's saying the medicals today, but I, mm. I thought he was such a such a sought-after talent that you wouldn't be surprised to see somebody like Liverpool kind of swoop in uh, right at the death for him. But if, if Tottenham can get that done, that's that's probably the pick of the bunch in terms of those signings that you mentioned. Okay. All right. Well, many thanks to everyone who sent in questions. We, we'd love to have them for Monday as well when we'll be returning. Uh, among the topics, no doubt, is the athletics hunt for the best Premier League performances ever. This celebrating 30 years of the competition. The Athletic will be counting down this summer the top 50 individual performances from the competition's history, in their opinion. So far, we've had three. We've had 50, 49 and 48. Shall I run you down? The uh, number 50... Jamie Vardy, Leicester City, in the 5-3 win over Louis van Gaal's Man United. Do you remember that? 27-year-old Vardy scoring his first ever Premier League goal in that game. It was a spectacular victory for Nigel Pearson's newly promoted Foxes. Just reading from my notes is, there. Is that the, that's the Di Maria chip game, mm-hmm. isn't it? When they went 3-1 up. Turning point, that. Did Cambiasso score? Did uh, the aforementioned Cambiasso ah. score in that game as well? I think. Very nice. What do you recall? You'll have been minus two at the time of something, but uh, uh, choice number 49 by Oliver Kay, who goes for Wayne Rooney for Everton, but not that Everton game. It's the, I, I respect this, the nil-nil with Bolton. Memorable Premier League performance, top 50 ever. Yeah, Everton nil, Bolton nil. Essentially, this was Bolton uh, playing not Everton, but playing a 17-year-old Wayne Rooney. It, it was that dominant a performance, apparently. I don't recall it myself. It was 2002. Does that have any flickers of recognition? Yeah, Daniel? it was. It, it was. It was the kind of. It was that first game where everyone said, "Actually, he's not just a brilliant footballer. He he really wants to grab a, at any age. He wants to grab the team by the scruff of its neck." And Everton were awful and didn't really deserve a draw. But Rooney did absolutely everything. He kind of dogging back in midfield and then trying to break the lines. And yeah, uh, it was. It was. I do remember it. It was a good performance. Hmm. All right. And number forty-eight is from Art de Roche. He goes with Mesut Ozil in Arsenal's 3-1 win over Leicester City. Possibly the last hurrah for Ozil in an Arsenal shirt with fancy flicks and incisive passes galore. Wow. That's only only scratching the surface. Only the tip of the Premier League great performances iceberg there. I would ask, Matt, what you think have been the great... Well, yeah, go on, I will. What, what do you think? Uh, what, in terms of Forest or in terms of yes. just ever? Great I mean, it's, kind of, it's a pretty small sample... So yeah, I was going to go for, for I mean, not Atkinson saying, against I Arsenal. So. Yeah, that was the one yeah. that, that immediately... I would uh, go Forest-wise. Uh, you don't my have first to go Forest-wise, Daniel. No, I do. I really There's 30 do. years of Premier League <laughs> My there. first... Nobody else will, James. My for One of my first ever away games was a 7-1 win away at Sheffield Wednesday, which was then the record for a Premier League away win. Right. And Brian Roy was absolutely ah. majestic that day he scored twice and, and set up another two Stone this is good flowing stuff from Forrest and on to Brian Roy it's another goal for Forrest and Forrest are tearing Sheffield Wednesday apart he's got some slightly du- well he hasn't got some slightly he's got some incredibly dubious opinions now Brian Roy oh does but he? he yeah yeah oh no uh, which is a real shame but um, what are his opinions sorry I'm interrupting it's your very uh, I mean it's very much of the 
of the Matt Letizia mold, I think, oh. um, which is a shame. Um, but yeah, but his, I mean, his Collie Moore was the star in that team, and Pierce was the fa- was the obvious fan favorite. But Bri- the t- Brian Royce touch in that team was just absolutely outstanding. So yeah, I'd go for that. We were yeah. discussing football shirts before we came on air. I've actually got the Roy twenty two purple away kit from that season I mean, if I could lob in a serious one James I'd go oh. for Edin Hazard Chelsea against Arsenal 2017 the, the, the Conte season he scored that goal he kind of picks it up from halfway throws Coquelin to the ground beats everybody uses both the, the power of his brilliant feet and his, his big fat bum to, to hold defenders off and then um, slots it into the bottom corner now Hazard awful lot of room between he and the goal Coquelin doing his best to stay with him he had no chance still Hazard and still, Eddie Hazard! Yeah! Oh, my goodness me! He dominated that game, and that was when he was at the, the peak of his powers. I think there's probably quite a few Hazard ones that I could um, that I could chuck into that top 50. Mm. Jay, have you got a... I do. I would probably um, go for Arsenal-Liverpool 4-2 when Thierry Henry scored that mm. hat-trick and that goal where he kind of just slaloms his way through the whole team and, and slots it into the corner. I think it was just, you know, I think that was during the Invincible season as well. So just more moments of pure class from that man. Arshavin at Anfield too? Yeah, no, he all goals. he did was <laughs> score four goals. Yeah, I, I, I'm... <laughs> But it was a draw that game, so mm-hmm. I, I don't know. For me, it kind of takes away f- away from it. If it's a four-three win, a hundred percent. But because it's a draw, I don't know. What, for me, it just takes away the like the the beauty of it. It doesn't make it perfect. Mark Viduka, to- Leeds v Liverpool. They win that game. That was pretty good. Yeah, maybe. I, I'm prepared to accept that Henri versus Liverpool probably has a greater chance than Roy versus Sheffield Wednesday. <laughs> 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 Well, 47 picks to go as uh, we record this. Perhaps, listener, you would like to let us know your favourite. We can mention that, uh, you know, with reasons and stuff, uh, in Monday's show. Today, let's conclude with a quick shout for the England women's uh, national side final squad for Euro 2022, which kicks off uh, 6th of July. Uh, Daniel, you went up to St George's Park for the squad announcement and the headline news was... Yeah, Steph, Steph Wharton out, which, I mean, wasn't a complete shock um, because, you know, she, she got injured last September. It was a serious injury. She came back in January, played a few games, aggravated it and has been kind of publicly insisting that she's back to full fitness. Serena Vigman did a, a press conference after the announcement and kind of said she she's getting there, but she's just not ready to compete. And, and Vigman now has lots of options in every position and therefore felt she should leave Steph out. The, the the bigger thing was that she was asked subsequently whether she was going to keep Horton around as, you know, as a, a an experienced player, as a kind of mentor for the squad. And she it was almost as if she hadn't even considered that and fairly abruptly said no. Uh, she said, we've got plenty enough experience in this squad. Uh, we will have the 23 players and that's it. So she's a very direct Vigman. She's also been incredibly successful. Uh, and yeah, England play on the day we record. England play their first pre-tournament friendly against Belgium. Uh, they then play the Netherlands, which is Vigman's old country, and and Switzerland before before the tournament begins on July the sixth, as you say. 
Mm. England are so well stocked at, at centre half as well with, with Williamson, Brighton and Alex Green with three players coming off the back of, of really good seasons. I think it'd be very difficult for, for somebody like Steph Horton to, to essentially just act as a cheerleader, you know, almost like David Beckham did in in 2010. And, and People have, have pointed to the inclusion of people like Frank Kirby has also had an injury interrupted season, but it's all about position for me. You know, Frank Kirby can come on for a 20 minute cameo mm. and change a game and score a goal. That's not going to happen with a centre half, but it's such a shame for, for Steph Orton, somebody who's been a kind of totemic fixture in English women's football for so long, not to be able to get to play at home Euros. But I, I respect the ruthlessness from, from Wiegmann because realistically, you know, she hasn't played since January. She's played a handful of games. She she wasn't going to be a useful playing member, even if she could add something uh, in a kind of Connor Cody vibes person role uh, off the pitch. But I suspect that she wouldn't do that because she'd be so disappointed at, at not having a playing role in the squad. Do you know, it prevents it from becoming a distraction as well. Like we've all seen it with, with the men's side at tournaments before where, you know, you take a player who's not fully fit and it just becomes the, you know, the dominating theme of every single press conference. So, you know, Weidman's probably done a good job by just kind of getting rid of that whole chaos early on. Right. So, yeah, that, that's a really good point because actually the first maybe three or four questions were understandably, because we'd only found out the squad five minutes before or 20 minutes before, were about Steph and very quickly after those questions or after answering one of them she said look I've answered three questions on this now can we actually talk about the 23 players who are in the squad so I think you got that sense that she was aware that that Steph is a big name and has been a big player for England and therefore that probably played into her thinking Mm. right just avoid that whole Yuri Geller situation (laughs) excellent there's a special athletic women's football podcast out right now actually with Katie Wyatt speaking to one player from every England Euros campaign in the build-up to this latest tournament. So check that out. As I say, Totally returns uh, this Monday. Always welcome your questions. We'll have lots of other things to discuss, I'm sure. For now, though, it's many, many thanks to Jay. Stellar debut performance. Thank you very much. Music to my ears. Oh, (laughs) lovely stuff. Lovely stuff. A listener, you, for providing the ears. Matt, Daniel, just fantastic as ever and producer Charlie putting the whole whole thing together great stuff have a lovely weekend everyone and we'll catch up with you on Monday you've been listening to the Totally Football Show part of the Athletic Podcast Network listen ad free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.